Hello, and welcome back to the Self Healer Soundboard. Today's episode, we're going to talk about the growth or the resilience that comes after you experience and heal from trauma. We're often talking about the experience of our trauma or the hardship or the newness or the difficulty, and we spend much less time talking about the transformation or the growth and the beauty and the treasure that really does come after the adversity, that comes through the adversity. Breakthroughs really do come from breakdown. So we're going to highlight here on this episode some of those beautiful breakthroughs following a post that we did earlier this week or last week where we did a couple slides and went through different positive aspects that do come specifically out of adversity and through trauma. So what we're talking about is actually a term coined in the 90s um, when researchers actually began to study it. And what it really is, is like Jenna just said, it's the transformation that follows trauma or any adversity that we experience. Now, of course, while this was coined in the 90s and began to be researched in the 90s, many traditions, including Buddhism, have talked about the positive or the growth that comes from suffering well before the 90s. Each of you who are listening have your own life and your own life experience that also shows you that this has been around much longer than the 90s for all of our lifetimes, for hundreds of years and centuries, because hardship has been, struggle has been, adversity and trauma have been, and so have healing and breakthroughs and triumph. So it is important that while these psychologists did give it a name in the 90s, it allowed it to have language, to be a workable conversation and to give it a topic, though it does expand much beyond that and has been expanding beyond that, even without the language and without the term. So what are the positive aspects of, of trauma? I think the, the most important and most impactful one is self-awareness or really just the ability to consciously see yourself, your thoughts, your feelings, your choices, your behaviors, as well as the effects of all of the experiences that you have and the effects that you have on the world around you. In other words, what we talk about often here, you and I, Jenna, which is consciousness. Becoming conscious is often the foundational tool to even heal, to create change from trauma. And in my opinion, that increased ability, the ability to really just see yourself objectively allows you to then begin to make new choices. And in my opinion, when we come through trauma, many of us have that increased self-awareness. We have the ability to be really intimately aware of whether it's our internal worlds or aware of the effect that the world externally has on us and that we have on the world. And as far as we think we see it here, that is a foundation for change. Self-awareness is an incredible growth that allows you to then make new choices. Self-awareness to me really is the core and fundamental, we'll call it a skill in our healing. And a lot of that does come through suffering. Trauma creates great suffering. And for me personally, I know my life is a testament to all of these wonderful things or personal growth that does come from that trauma. And the very beginning of that starts with self-awareness. It is that consciousness. For me, that was very much born out of a childhood of deep suffering, of kind of being at rock bottom and looking around and needing to learn myself, to be aware of myself and my surroundings. As I grew older and became actually responsible for myself now as an adult, having that self-awareness needed to go even a, a dive deeper. I did know me. I did learn to follow my heart. I did have a very strong and do have a very strong 
whole and connection to my intuition, that connection to myself, that self-awareness on a really on a divine spiritual core level for me came directly out of a need as a child, sort of in this chaotic, almost like you're treading water, trying to figure out how to survive. And there was an innate knowing and calmness in me and of myself that really brought myself to a level that was beyond the human experience, that was a spiritual experience to know that I am okay, that I will be okay, and that I'm here with me and for me. And again, this may look different for everyone. This is personally what I'm speaking about. That's my journey. That's how I found self-awareness through my own suffering. It's going to look different for Nicole. It's going to look different for Lolly. It's going to look different for each person who is listening. But it's that core fundamental beginning of consciousness, of awareness, and of choice that we're really talking about here with self-awareness. So just like you described, Jenna, you know, for as long as I can remember, I, I really believed myself to be very aware. Um, I was very attentive to the thoughts in my head and I was very aware of the world around me, of other people, of the effects that I and others were having and vice versa. And I saw very similar in the clients I used to see. And what I have found is there's a, a really a fine line between what we're talking about here in terms of consciousness, like the awareness, the ability to witness our internal or our external worlds and an over-reliance on the thought or the thinking mind or the analytical brain, if you will. And I think a lot of us spend time, I know I did, for a very long time escaping to my thoughts, being distracted by my thoughts or being distracted by the world around me, for me was my safety. When I felt overwhelmed by the stress in my body, the stress in my household, my spaceship, as I call it, was where I, I found safety. So I think when we're talking about self-awareness here, it is important to acknowledge that fine line that sometimes what we're not, what we're talking about is a hyper-focus in our thinking mind. And awareness isn't really that. It's, you know, the cliche or the metaphor, whatever we want to call it, being the sky that the clouds are on, or right, the river that the, the, the stream is bubbling around, right? Learning how to be the observer is different than getting caught in the loop of our thoughts. Right. And that's powerful, that hypervigilance that you're talking about, because there is kind of a fine line. And the awareness is coming from the fact that you're even observing that you are being hypervigilant, having the awareness that your body is so overwhelmed. So you're flying away to your spaceship or just going into autopilot and kind of detaching. Self-awareness, as we're talking about it here, is quite literally the awareness that you're even doing that, not fixing or changing or doing anything about it, but just building a foundation of awareness to be our own observer, to begin to trust our own instincts. And when we're in that conscious place, as you're beautifully wording it, then we can make choice. We can make the choice to say, you know what, I am going to get caught in my thoughts right now, or maybe I won't in that moment. And that is that shift from being lost in my mind where my mind is controlling me and really having the opportunity, like you're very beautifully saying, of empowerment to say, yes, all of this is happening internally. All of this might be happening externally, yet I still have that space around me. And a lot of times, you know, I see in comments when you and I talk about holding space, what do we mean? Here's one of the definitions of holding space, right? I can see my thoughts. I can witness them. I can see the world around me and the effect it's having. And yet I almost have this bubble around me of space where I can now begin to implement new choices. 
And I'll note this specifically here with self-awareness, though this goes for everything that we're going to discuss today, all post-traumatic growth. It's ongoing. We're still growing. We still experience suffering. We still experience trauma and adversity. So this self-awareness and why I really just see it as such a core or foundational piece is an ongoing one I keep in my back pocket on a daily basis. And this specifically has come up really strongly for me in grieving my brother in Jake's passing that was a little less than two months ago. And I have realized I do have such great self-awareness of observing myself. I see this really deep connection that I do have to my spirituality that I do have to Jake, even though he's transitioned and is no longer here in human form. And what I've noticed is kind of this polarity or being at war where there's this spiritual Jenna and this human Jenna who are a little bit at odds with each other because I do have this awareness that I have this, you know, innate, just really comforting knowing of a macro or a very spiritual picture. Yet I'm still human and I'm still here in this human shell, in this human experience, in this human life. And human Jenna, I was joking in the last couple of weeks, kind of needs to go to kindergarten now. For the first time, I'm experiencing really this grief and trauma on a really deep level that's bringing up a lot of emotion that human Jenna had never dealt with and never felt before. And I have the awareness now that I've done that or I'm doing that. And I'm able now with that self-awareness that's been cultivating my whole life to see it even on a deeper level where I'm like, you know, I do this work, I teach this work, I know it. Like, why am I, why do I feel like I'm imploding over here? Well, because at sometimes I've sort of defaulted to that spirituality or defaulted to that comfort. So I now have the ability to really see when I do that, when I almost use that as a scapegoat. And I'm like, oh, well, it's okay. Like it's all meant to be when really that's offering neglect and betrayal to honoring myself in the now. So this self-awareness piece is really us becoming our own witness, just observing ourselves for Nicole, observing when she does go off on that spaceship, maybe not even doing anything about it, but just noting that it's there and it's happening, which then gives us choice. And the more we have that self-awareness cultivating, the more conscious choice we have, the more conscious choice we have, the more we are actually direct creators of the life that we want, not the one that just keeps happening to us. So I think now shifting focus a bit, we just talked about right awareness of the self. Now let's shift into awareness of another person. What I mean here is empathy, right? Or in other words, the ability to understand another person's thoughts, another person's beliefs, another person's feelings or choices or whatever it might be, especially when they differ from us. And the ability to be empathetic is just that, is again, another version of holding space where I can know whatever I think in any given moment or whatever emotional reaction I'm having. And I can hold space for someone else, not only to have a different experience, I have the ability to, in other words, put myself in their shoes, to imagine the experience that they might be having in that time. That's what empathy really is, that ability to almost shape shift and view the world through another's perspective. And this obviously becomes increasingly more difficult as those perspectives are much more different than ours. I think, you know, for most of us humans, we have like-minded friends. It's very easy to shift into seeing the world through their eyes, though, when we're met with someone who has drastically different beliefs or who's having a drastically different emotional reaction to whatever's happening in front of us, especially when it differs from ours, that's when a lot of us struggle to really be empathetic. And that's what that is, just seeing the world and experiencing the world as if you're someone else. 
Empathy is kind of like a golden ticket to the world for me because it is very much shape-shifting. If you're able to understand or truly hear another person's experience, you know, maybe it's something you can relate to. Maybe it's an experience that you've never had. Yet when you give the space to truly listen to another person, to allow them to speak, to allow them to share their experience, you can almost try it on and try on that experience at least to some degree understand what it may have been like for them. And this may be really relatable for people when we're talking about our parents. A lot of us have a lot of healing to do with our parents or our parent figures or our caregivers. And I know for me personally on my journey, the older I got and the more that I realized within my own work that my parents were just like me. They were human beings that also suffered their own trauma. Some that's been spoken of, some that I know is still very much, you know, swept under the rug and hopefully forgotten. Yet the conditioning, the habits, the the lingering effects of that trauma are still there. Their parenting and caretaking, the childhood that I was given from them is a direct result of that. And I'm able as an adult now to look at them as, as me, like me. They were what, 30 in their thirties when they had me, I'm going to be 35 in a couple of weeks. And I can look at my life experience and understand they were in a very different time as well. They didn't have as much access or an Instagram to pop onto to learn some healing tools or do a Google search. Yes, there were libraries, but this conversation around healing or this conversation around dealing with our traumas or transforming trauma into really these treasures and to growth and having this reframe and mindset didn't necessarily exist for them. So it gives an opportunity, I think, for many of you listening as well, as we're healing, you may have had that experience of having more empathy for your parents or just being able to understand that it wasn't malicious what your parents did or didn't do to you for many of us. It, however, was them doing the best that they could with the tools that they had at that time. So parent figures is just one example of empathy, though I think that's one that many of us can relate to as we all have a caregiver in some way in our lifetime. And it really is taking us out of our shoes, maybe even close your eyes and imagine yourself physically standing in that other person's shoes going through that day today. Each of you right now listening, I know Nicole and myself here, I know Furkan who's behind the scenes, every single person is dealing with something in their life, in their day-to-day experience that most of us know nothing about. So this is also an opportunity to just lead with empathy from our heart to the stranger on the street, to your partner, to your children, understanding that their life is just as dynamic and colorful as yours is, which only means that there's an abundance of opportunity for empathy to be utilized, to be given to yourself and to be given to those around you. So I think in in a very real way, right, self-awareness or consciousness and empathy go hand in hand. The more we become aware of how much our habits affect us and how much many of our habits came from just to continue the conversation around parents or caregivers, right? How much they come from those who came before us as we heal. And we offer that empathy, if you will, or compassion to ourselves, understanding that many factors influence the choices that we make. And many of the factors came well before we were even born, right? These habits and these patterns that I'm referring to that many times allows us to then shift in to holding that space or that empathy for another. And of course, like I said earlier, many of us feel very connected to others who have experienced similar trauma because that form of empathy is is natural. It's easy. We can very much 
envision life through someone else's eyes because more or less we've lived it. And of course, it gets more challenging as the stories differ, though you'll often hear Jenna and I say, especially when we're talking about the circle, how it is the telling of our stories that allows us to have that opportunity to see the world through other people's perspectives and to hold that space, to be empathetic or to be compassionate. And a lot of times it begins with us doing that for ourselves first, understanding that we are well-intentioned humans who often attempt to come from a loving place. And because of our own wounding, because of our own trauma, we fall short sometimes. And when we offer ourselves that olive branch of self-compassion, if you will, or self-empathy, we can then shift into doing that for another person. It's that classic, you know, what you do unto you is what you do unto others. And we're botching that a little bit, though that is the sentiment. And when Nicole mentions the circle, for those of you who do not know, we have an online virtual global healing membership called the Self-Healer Circle. And it's true that the sharing and the, the membership really is made up by the members. It is their engagement with one another. It's their own sharing that allows them, I think, the, the quickest and most profound access to cultivating their own empathy. There is a, a rawness and a courage that it takes to share your story, let alone to share it and have it received by others that will meet you with compassion and empathy. And I think sharing gives you that direct experience then of what it's like to listen, what it's like to receive empathy, giving you better access to then gift that to others. While we're having this conversation about empathy, I think it's important to acknowledge another fine line. Um, so the ability right, to, to understand another's perspective is different than what a lot of us experience that actually comes from trauma, which is a hypervigilance or almost an obsessiveness about trying to worry or understand someone else's thoughts, someone else's feelings, or being really overly concerned with someone else's choices. And again, I refer to that as a trauma response because I know for me, my, my codependent patterns, which really just is trying to meet my needs through showing up for someone else, that came as my best attempt in childhood to find safety. Because a lot of us, when we don't feel safe in our emotions, when we don't feel safe in our self-expression, we do find safety in being overly controlling of the world around us. Because the thought very understandably is, right, if I so focus on making sure everyone around me is, is not upset, or if I show up like I did in service of someone else, then my, my backwards thinking was then my life is less stressful and or I feel happier or more connected to that person. So the conversation here is important to acknowledge that that is our best attempt at safety at one time when I didn't have the opportunity to meet my own needs or to feel safe in my own emotions, kind of controlling the environment around me or others around me was our best attempt, was my best attempt at keeping myself as safe as possible. Now that's a little different than what empathy is. That's this hypervigilance where I'm always worrying. I almost feel like I'm scanning the room to see if anyone needs anything. And for all of you caretakers out there, this applies to you. A lot of times you become so focused on what everyone else wants or needs. And we might be mis miscalling it empathy and thinking that, oh, I'm just so attuned. But really that attunement is coming from, from a traumatized place. And that's where the healing begins. So you can still be an attuned individual, but it's that choice that we were talking about earlier, right? So now me, I can show up and still be attuned, still be empathetic to say what Jenna might need in a moment, but it's not my default. I still have the opportunity or I've cultivated the space now to say, okay, well, Nicole, what do I need in this moment? 
what does Jenna need in this moment? How available am I to meet her need in this moment? Giving myself the opportunity to say, "Mm, I'm not actually available. I need my resources for me. That is a very big shift. Or maybe I say, you know what? I have the resources. I can show up in support of Jenna. So while it might look the same, I'm showing up to help Jenna through whatever it is, that choice, that consciousness, the ability to make the choice to say, you know, I am going to do this for someone else is different than that. I just go to that. That's my default. This is the only way I can keep myself safe is to make sure Jenna's okay so that I'm okay. And the only way you're going to be able to use your own discernment or really decipher between the two as Nicole's sharing is through that self-awareness. That first piece we touched on is through witnessing yourself. And hypervigilance is something that can almost, as we're speaking of it, almost be morphed into empathy, but only with that self-awareness or that conscious awareness. I know in my childhood, um, hypervigilance was very much a, a survival. I'm very attuned to what's happening around me, what that person's needs are. I know how to read a room very well. My brother, Jacob, who has now passed, wrote a beautiful piece online called The Rooms Project. It's called Jacob's Story. And it shares his childhood experience, his trauma, what led him into a life of addiction and then into a life of recovery. And even though I grew up in that same environment with him, it's so powerful for me to read it from his perspective and to really learn and watch from my own childhood, because a lot of it for me, I don't remember. And him being about a year or two older, a year and a half older than I was, he very much did have that caretaker protector role. And the way he describes it is through, you know, his own work and self-awareness of that hypervigilance of for him, He described it as always feeling like he was in a boxing ring, always going to one side to cater to my mom in a fight, see how she was feeling, see what her actual point was, what she wanted to get across. And then he'd rush over to my dad and he would do the same thing. So he, like me and my twin brother, very much became hypervigilant, knew how to morph into any situation, how to protect himself, how to protect those around him. Through his own growth and his own life experience with that self-awareness, That's able to be highlighted and reframed as empathy. He had the ability to then see in moments, you know, when he is hyper-focused, as Nicole's talking about, out of fear or out of scarcity when it's a trauma response versus the massive heart that he also has that is empathetic, that because of that experience, because of my experience in childhood of being so hyper-vigilant, of being so aware and so fearful so much of the time, always on that high alert. As an adult, there is tremendous empathy. There's tremendous ability and opportunity that I have now to understand another person, to understand why they might be feeling the way that they are, why they might be thinking what they're thinking or doing what they're doing, because there was so much experience crammed into such a small period of time as a child. So it's only with that base layer of self-awareness that any of these things really can reframe from the immediate trauma response that they are, like hypervigilance, and then eventually be reframed and experienced into actual conscious empathy and cultivation of empathy for ourselves and those around us. Such a a beautiful way to word it and kind of building off these concepts that we're talking about, right? What we're talking a lot about is the experience of something overwhelming, the experience of trauma, the experience of stress. And what we're really talking about here, of course, as we heal and as most of us just go through those experiences is resilience. Because what resilience really is or how it's defined 
is the ability to cope with stress and to return to, to calm or to homeostasis, as our body likes to call it. Resilience is actually not the absence of stress. I think a lot of us have this idea that as we heal, we're going to get to this very Zen place and nothing's going to bother us and everything's going to be like a peace sign. That's not the case. What we're actually rebuilding is the ability to tolerate stress because living a human existence, stress will be part of it. There will be things that happen that are out of our control that are appear that do appear traumatic, that do shake us from that homeostasis or activate our fight or flight response. And what resilience really is, is the ability to have that fight or fight response activated time and time again and to return to baseline. Though, of course, a lot of us before we heal or when we're beginning our journey, we get stuck. We actually never come back to that safety or to that baseline. And as we begin to build in those moments of returning to safety, that's actually what we're cultivating. Resilience, the ability to experience the stress of life. And to, to come back down, to come back into calm, to come back into peace, to come back into presence, to come back into safety. When we shared this post about the positive aspects of our healing or growth after such trauma or adversity, so post-traumatic growth, what we're talking about, reading through the comments, a lot of the things, most things that people resonated with or saw within themselves was resilience and their own resiliency. So as you're here listening or watching this and us all sitting here today, we know that we are resilient because we are sitting here today. Each of us has gone through a multitude of life experiences, all different from one another, all that we have expanded and all that we have grown through those experiences, those adversities, struggles, traumas, challenges, whatever it is that you want to call them. We've grown, we expand, we learn. We might have the same thing repeat itself 5, 10, 15, 20 times until we learn the lesson, or maybe we haven't learned the lesson quite yet. However, each time we're still new coming out of it. We are expanding. We are adapting more and more to the environment around us, creating an expanded ability to deal with more adversity. I remember the first time I really heard the word resilience or heard the word resilience used to describe me. And I felt like I was on cloud nine. It was a friend in Boston uh, named Cynthia. And we were out for a walk. And I think I was probably maybe 25 at the time or early 20s. So I was at that period of my life. I think Jake was actively using. I was in a time away from speaking with my mother or my family. I had left New York and not gone back probably at least five or six years in at this point. And whatever it was that I was sharing, whatever was happening at that time, her response was commenting on how resilient I was. And I remember how great it felt. And then exploring a little more like, you know, what is that? What does that mean when someone tells you you're resilient? And I thought, oh, it means that you just bounce back. Something happens to you and you just bounce back. It's a little different because you're not bouncing back as the same person. You may actually be completely shattered and then transformed or shattered and then have the pieces come back together in an expanded, stronger way. And during that same time period, I had another friend who sent me a beautiful piece of pottery in the mail. And I had never heard of this art form before, but there's a Japanese art called Kintsugi. Apologies if I'm saying that wrong. It's K-I-N. T-S-U-G-I. And it's pottery that has shattered, except being instead of being, you know, just thrown out or glued back together and trying to cover up the cracks or repaint it, 
the cracks are actually highlighted in beautiful gold or silver liqueur or paint. So the pottery that I received from this friend in the mail during that same time period when I was told I was resilient was this beautiful bowl that had been shattered at some point and pieced back together with the most beautiful gold veins running through it. All gold veins showing that trauma, showing the hardship, showing the breakage, and then showing the beauty and transformation that this bull became coming back together as an entirely new entity than what it was before it went through the shattering. That's so beautiful. And I'm actually, if I'm being fully honest, Jenna, while it's very beautiful on one hand for me, I'm cringing inside the perfectionist in me, um, because I think the conversation that I want to expand on here when we're talking about resilience is, right, what we're really exploring is the consciousness of the suffering, being aware of the pain, being aware of what has happened to us. And of course, I'm contrasting that with the tendency to not look, to, to just focus on perfection or just to, to keep going. And something I heard a lot growing up was this idea where people around me used to say to me, oh, nothing bothers Nicole. Seemingly, you bounce back because I never really registered a bother and upset or I didn't show that to anyone around me. So when I was joking, like this idea of showing your imperfection, showing your pain, showing your suffering in this transformed way, in this beautiful pottery for a very long time was something I actively avoided. I would never show anyone my pain, never show anyone my suffering, never show anyone my feelings. And it did then result in the world around me or people around me having this idea that I was really resilient, that nothing actually did bother me because seemingly I was bouncing back all of the time. So an important conversation, again, that fine line of awareness here is allowing ourselves to be in the suffering is the first step, to be with whatever it is that created the pain or the trauma that we then bounced back from. And a lot of us overstep that. We present to the world, even ourselves. For a very long time, I never would have resonated with being resilient because I had this idea that nothing was really bothering me. It was so deep down. It was just so what I was used to feeling I wasn't even, I was on my spaceship. I wasn't even in touch with my suffering. So the resilience means being aware of the suffering and being aware then of the return to that safety. It makes me laugh when I think back to little Jenna or even just high school Jenna, my senior year, high school yearbook quote was smile like you mean it, which is a song I think by the killers. And Everyone knew me for my smile. I think my nickname, even in that yearbook, was Crest. I was always smiling and always had a smile on my face. Home was a complete volcano erupting and it felt catastrophic. It was very unsafe in so many ways. Yet what presented to other people was not that at all. It was very much this girl who kept a smile on, who really lived and believed and acted like I could get through anything. So in a way, it was almost resilience as a facade. Here's this smile. Here's this, you know, yep, I can bounce back. I'm just going to keep bouncing back until I progressed after that into my 20s and finally realized when I explored resilience a little deeper that it's not bouncing back. It is what you're saying in that feeling your actual feelings, being aware of it. If we just keep bouncing back and acting like a punching bag through life, we could call ourselves resilient, but it's not actually resilience at its core. We're then still just this autopilot body, just cruising through life on this cruise control versus 
actually feeling the shattered parts, actually feeling the downtime, actually being a witness and being honest to ourselves when something hurts, when something isn't okay, even as an adult, maybe being in a situation that we now know isn't okay. And as an adult, it's up to us to leave it, to change it, or to remove ourselves. That's active resilience, being here, going through it, witnessing it, and then still moving forward and coming out the other side. Thank you for sharing um, your, your high school experience, Jenna, and being you are offering right this tendency to, to be smiling all the time or even your, your nickname of being called Crest. Um, another aspect of, of trauma that can actually come be a very positive aspect that comes for a lot of us is actually the ability to smile or to be humorous, to laugh at ourselves. Um, I think that a lot of us that go through difficult experiences, maybe not at first, um, at first, you know, of course, when we're looking at the pain that we've experienced, um, the suffering that we're living in the world, you know, a lot of us struggle to, to find humor, though, the more we walk through that, the more we do have the ability then to to make light of things, to laugh at ourselves, to laugh at other people, to to find the, the levity or the, or the lightness about this human experience. And in my opinion, that is another one of the gifts that, that comes from suffering. I love how you often talk about, right, the dark and the light or the opposites. And from pain, for a lot of us, comes the ability to, to see lightness or to see the humor in things. That contrast, as Nicole mentioned, is a favorite of mine. I naturally see my experiences and our work, our teachings through the lens of contrast. We know darkness because we know light. If we didn't have an understanding or awareness or even a concept of light, we wouldn't have an ability to even understand what darkness is. One does not exist without the other. So when we're talking here about humor, as Nicole's saying, we know that struggle, the depth of struggle, while on the opposite end of that is also this, this lightness or this humor. However, as many of you may have experienced in your own lives, there's very much this crossover where we can begin to unconsciously mask our feelings through using this humor. So in, in high school, through that facade, oh, here's Jenna, we call her crest. She's got a, a great smile plastered on her face all of the time. Little do you know, I missed maybe 90% of my senior year at home. It was very loud and abusive and chaotic. Yet all of that was masked on the surface. It looked very pleasant. I was jovial. I probably did crack jokes. I did use that humor as a way to mask my feelings. I became very funny or very witty in a very dry way that Nicole and Lolly both comment on all the time. And while I love that and do love my deeper kind of really dark sense of humor, I am very aware that it was born specifically as a survival skill when I was younger. So I'm going to share um, a little bit of an opposite experience. So I wasn't getting called crest in high school. I wasn't being commented on for my smile. I was actually the person actually up through my twenties, if I'm being honest, that when even strangers on the street would walk by me, I've heard many times smile, it won't hurt you. Um, so humor in my life was, was largely absent for a very long period of time. And Again, there's a reason why, for those of you out there listening who might not be able to find your humor or your smile, a lot of times it, it lives within the trauma itself. When our nervous system is activated, when we are scanning the environment looking for the next threat, nothing can be funny because nothing is funny when it's life or death, according to our nervous system, according to our body. And for me, living in that spaceship, being constantly in fight or flight or some degree of dissociation, 
didn't actually allow me to find things funny. And I remember very early on in my relationship with Lolly. So one of her, you know, growths from trauma or one of her positives is the ability to make light of pretty much everything, myself included. And in the beginning of our relationship, when I wasn't able to see that as funny, it was very, very hurtful. Um, I would hear her jokes. I would hear how she viewed the world. And definitely when the jokes were directed at me, I wasn't laughing. My whole face wore the absence of, of humor or of laughter. And again, so anyone out there listening who you know hasn't laughed in a while, who, who can't connect with humor, the answer might be in your nervous system. We can't feel funny. We can't feel light about the world when we're feeling threatened, when we're locked in fight or flight, there is no time or no room for humor. And I know a lot of you out there might've had similar things yelled at you, right? Smile a little bit, it won't hurt you. And again, understanding why you might not be able to yet find your smile is living likely in your body, in the experience of trauma. And so for me, as I got more grounded, as I learned how to create more safety in my body and in my mind, over time, I was able to, to find more humor. And I actually had a really powerful experience um, when I reconnected with, with Lolly's mom, who hadn't seen me in a couple of years since healing. And she said to me aloud, wow, Nicole, you seem really light and happy. And for me, that, that meant everything to me because she saw me at the beginning of my journey. She saw me wearing the weight of the world on my shoulders and not probably laughing at everything. So to hear her now several years later, experience me in this actual lighter way for me is a testament of my transformation. I did the work in my body to be able to even find my, my humor again. I love that. And I remember her saying that to you. I think that was actually this summer here in Arizona when she was out here. And I made a note of it too, because I noticed a difference even in the two, three, how long, I don't know how many years, two years now, since like meeting and being physically in person, there's a different lightness or Lolly will even sometimes comment. And if Nicole, like, you know, is dancing in the kitchen or something and it's sweet in the very beginning, I always pick up when Lolly would comment on it that, you know, Nicole didn't used to dance. She didn't used to, to be like that or to have that lightness. So it's very much something new that's grown into. That self-awareness piece weaves right back into humor and what we're discussing here. And I immediately think of my brothers growing up who I think are tremendously funny, who both have an uncanny ability to make the people around them laugh. And I can see now as adults, that ability and take it all the way back into childhood when they were poking fun or making us all laugh or giggle. And really the coping mechanism that, that became at that time to distract from what was going on around us. And the reason I mentioned self-awareness here is because it's one of those things to also witness and observe as we are older, as we do become aware and become witnessing ourselves. If you are that person who has this uncanny ability to crack jokes, to make others laugh, it feels good, right? I love saying something that makes my partners giggle or the people around me. It's really fulfilling for me. It makes me feel good. It makes me laugh. And I also see specifically when I'm with my brothers, I know they have that same ability and I learn a lot from watching them because they're mirrors to me. We came from the same place and I can see in a lot of times where there is a focus to make others laugh or something incredibly traumatic will happen. And because we're extremely used to it and it just becomes a norm, a joke is made or we laugh it off. We make something funny out of it. And as an adult now, I'm able to see it a little more as a red flag. Like, you know, that's 
That's actually something to feel, that's something to process and something to explore. And I'm very conscious to seeing when that default humor mechanism still comes in. Now, not as a period of growth and just, you know, having the ability to, to find humor, to access humor and joy, but having the awareness that humor is being used there still as a coping mechanism. It's being used to deflect from the experience that's happening versus being present in it and allowing ourselves to cultivate really just conscious humor when we're not reacting to a specific event or a specific trauma or struggle. So when we're talking about being consciously present in a moment, like we've been saying throughout this, we open ourselves to choice, choosing whether or not we want to be able to use humor. We also open ourselves up to the ability to be creative. Um, creativity, you know, is something that that comes with pure presence. So what is creativity? Right. The ability to to imagine, to take something, you know, from our mind that doesn't yet exist and to translate it, whether it's in verbal self-expression, emotional, maybe it's through dance or through art, or maybe it's a thing that we make, a creation, a dinner, a meal. There are so many ways that we create from the thoughts in our mind. And to be able to be creative begins, in my opinion, with the ability to be fully present. Creativity only comes, again, when our body is safe, when we're able to be open, to be receptive, whether it is to those creative thoughts in our mind, that only exists when we're fully present to it within us. Which is true creativity, right? Being conscious and being here, almost like you're using yourself as a channel for, well, you are using yourself as a channel for creativity to flow through you. Now, even though we're talking about being present or having a a grounded nervous system to really channel or allow that creativity to flow through you. Creativity has been something that you've been using your entire life as a child, even when you weren't, you know, grounded or in a state of homeostasis, when you were dealing with experiences that were traumatic, when you were dealing with struggle, your imagination has always been with you. As a child, for me, my imagination became my my manifestation powerhouse. I lived in my imagination. My imagination is what allowed me to deal with the experience around me. And while I didn't have language for it back then, what I've realized now as an adult that my entire childhood spent in imagination, really for me, imagination looked like a manifestation of the life that I wanted, a manifestation of the person that I wanted to be, the environment I wanted to be in, the house that I wanted to live in, not what was happening around me because that experience in my immediate physical arena was one I wanted to close my eyes to. It was one I was afraid of and one I was very scared of. So my imagination is where I went to cope and to, to really deal. You could also kind of look at that as your autopilot, this space that you go, right? That imagination turns into this creativity that Nicole's talking about when we're older, that present creativity, what's being used as an outlet for you to channel your emotions, to channel your pain. As a child, for me, it looked physical. I loved gymnastics. I loved dance. I loved the expression of using my body, creating routines, doing flips, moving it in whimsical ways. I know now that that was an outlet for me to, to channel that pain, for my body to physically express the emotion, ex 
express the pain that I didn't have words for, that I wasn't even aware of. That same imagination as an adult has turned into almost conscious creativity, you could say. I'm very aware that in order for me to create anything, I first have to create the space for that new thing to be created into. What does that mean? That might actually look like me setting an alarm on my phone to just have 30 minutes of journaling or 30 minutes of painting, or maybe for 30 minutes, I'm just going to go and move my body to some music. Or maybe I'm going to create memes or I'm going to create for the circle or create for our work. All of that is a channel and a form of creativity that I've consciously set aside time and space for so I can allow that creativity to channel through me versus using it as the autopiloted coping mechanism of my imagination that I very much relied on in childhood. So even sitting here, Jenna, hearing you say words like imagination, creativity, channel, for the large majority of my life up until recently, I wouldn't have resonated with any of those words. While I took art classes up through high school, my idea that I was creative died the second I walked out of that last art class. Into my 20s, if I heard people talk about channeling or being creative, I would have thought they were a different breed than myself. I didn't identify. I didn't understand all of the different definitions of being creative. And at the same time, I actually wasn't really in a creative space because again, back to the nervous system, when we're in fight or flight, when we're recycling old thoughts, and for me, it was constant worries, health related, concerns of the future, always predicting a worst case scenario. I actually, without that presence of what was really in front of me right then, all I was doing was recycling the past. To create is to create a new, a new thought, a new way of looking at a problem to translate, again, like we were talking about earlier, your expression into the world. And none of that can happen when we're locked in fight or flight, when we're recycling the same old thoughts. And the more I became, full circle conversation, aware of the thoughts I was having, the more I became aware of how my body, my nervous system wasn't in that state of presence to be creative in the ways that we all naturally are. And there's nothing technically wrong with that recycling. However, if we're recycling thoughts and habits and patterns of the past, then we know we're guaranteed to have that same thoughts and patterns of the past show up in our present. If we keep recycling, we're just going to have that recycled past here in the present which then is what depicts our future. So there's nothing wrong with that. However, most of us who are here on this journey of consciousness or healing are wanting to actually create our lives, are wanting to channel more through us, to actually, for many of us, we want to meet the person that we are. So many of us have gone through our lives as a result of where we came from and have just been cruising along being this person that we wound up being without taking time to actually get to know ourselves, see what it is that we do like, who are we? What is our creative expression? As Nicole mentioned, creative expression is, is really endless. It's going to look different for everyone. Some of us may have similarities. A lot of us might like to draw. A lot of us might like to dance or some like to cook. There's a creative expression that runs through each of us in a multitude of ways. I know I see I know I see within my brothers who come from the same childhood that I do, a beautiful expression in food, in photography, in what they like to create and delight for others or put on a menu. Something like that that might look like just a job or a profession is actually a form of creativity that is innate to them. And there's something that is innate to each of us. It's up to us to 
to sit down, to do the work, to have the self-awareness and really do the self-interviewing and trial and error to try things on and figure out what it is, what creative expression is here meant to flow through us. You can sort of look at yourself or your body really as a portal. There is something that wants to be transmuted through you. And it's up to us to really do the work, kind of chisel it away at what's at our core and allow that expression to come forth. It's so beautiful and it's almost bringing us to to one of the last, you know, most impactful aspects of of growth from trauma, which is the wisdom that comes through it. I think everything we're talking about here, we're really kind of hitting on the same point, which is the learning. That's what wisdom is. It's learning from life experiences, like you were just beautifully saying, discovering, learning who you are, learning what your creative expression is learning you, learning the impact your past experiences have had on how you're currently showing up, and then learning what that deeper space is, learning what your wants are, your desires, and then learning how to express that to the world. Learning, right, is wisdom. That's in my opinion and why going back to when we offered the circle and, you know, how our members are are of are part of the journey, their stories, it's because it's in that wisdom. As we each share our own learning with the world through our self-expression, through sharing our stories, we're actually sharing the wisdom that we've gained from all of the life that we've lived. I like to call it experienced-based wisdom. And really when you think of wisdom, it's it's based on experience. How many times have you listened to someone who, you know, seemingly so young say something so wise and so profound or something that really resonates with you and you learn a little bit more about them you learn about their past you learn about their childhood and you start to see all of the adversity you start to see what on the surface looks like tremendous struggle and probably underneath the surface was also tremendous struggle and through that experience through the consciousness of that experience i know i'll speak specifically personally about my life It's through the witnessing and the feeling and being in the actual pain. I did spend a multitude of years pushing it all away and actually choosing to dive into the trenches to sort of rip the, rip the wounds open and actually heal them instead of allowing them to scar over. That's what's given me so much wisdom and what continues to give me a lot of wisdom. I know even conjoining with Nicole and working together, creating together, being on this podcast, you know, Nicole is a psychologist. Nicole has a PhD. And in the very beginning, well, still now people We look at that. We're very trained. Well, you know, who's this person? One's a psychologist and the other's not. You know, what are your credentials, Jenna? Show me your credentials. Show me the letters after your names. And at first, this used to trigger me a lot because I would fantasize about the letters after my name. That just wasn't the path for me. However, it's experience-based wisdom. It's my own lived experience. It's my own growing, my own reflection, and my own feeling and being in the trenches and sharing it that's given me the ability to work through it and learn while I'm also teaching it. To be able to share in real time what cultivating wisdom is like, what using or utilizing wisdom that you've learned is like. And something really important that Nicole touched on is how much that struggle or adversity lives inside our body. And this specifically comes up for me in wisdom because there's so much wisdom held within our body, our emotions, our feelings, all of those pings, that intuition 
There's a magnitude of wisdom that's living inside of our physical body. When we are disconnected from it, when we're not feeling it, when we're just kind of cruising on cruise control or in that autopilot and detached from our body and that physical awareness, we're detached from that wisdom. We don't get to learn how we respond to certain reactions. We don't get to observe when maybe a threat is near or what we perceive as a threat because of something in our past is near. And then we get to use our own conscious discernment to realize, no, I am safe. We are safe. We're not in that same threat that we were before. All of that comes from the relationship that we have with our physical self, feeling that wisdom inside of our physical body. So much of what we're saying is us here talking. We're in our thinking mind. We're talking about great concepts, great theories, a lot of practical stuff. And I just want to take this minute to remind all of us that we need to also drop into our bodies. Even as we're discussing everything on this podcast, witness how your body feels. Go back and maybe re-listen to the parts that maybe were triggering or maybe that caused an upset or that you disagreed with right away. That's a ping for you to explore that there's something deeper there. This is such a beautiful concept and it's really where the what began as a hashtag and now in my opinion is a movement of, of self-healing began because to speak to your point you made earlier, yes, I have a PhD. I have many years of school. I have many books I read. I wrote many papers that were, you know, peer accredited and all of the things. However, I wasn't actually very wise at all. And I think a lot of us that outsource, that look for the textbook, that look for the guru, that look for someone else to have our answers. I already, I tried that. I tried that in practice. I tried that to heal myself, you know, as a, on a personal level. And I tried to impart that idea of, of wisdom or let's call it book knowledge, because that's, I think, what it really is on other people. And that's why, you know, I, I really am so impassioned about going back within because it doesn't work. No one's journey is going to exactly mirror ours. And I couldn't agree more than what you're offering here, Jenna, which is that we all have the wisdom inside. And I will go as far to say is I believe we are all teachers, right? We're all learning about ourselves and our journeys so that we can empower ourselves to make better choices that are more aligned with the future that we want. And then we become an incredibly powerful teacher or model for the world around us, whether or not that's just in our immediate family unit, or if you are someone who has a practice or who is more public in the world and the ripples that we cause from that teaching that really began with us learning the wisdom of our own life. Which brings us full circle to what this episode is on post-traumatic growth, which if you really want to be technical, has technically only been around since the mid-90s, which is just when someone gave language to it, which I'm very grateful for because it allows us to apply it and it allows us to, to make it workable in our day-to-day -day lives. However, like you're sharing here, that triumph after tragedy is age old. It's been around for as long as people have been around. So there isn't a difference that separates me from you or Nicole from you or you from any other listener. We all have life experiences. We all have experienced tragedy or struggle or heartache in some way. We all equally have the opportunity to then reframe, to explore, to actually sit in the trenches feel the feelings, be conscious to it, and then create that triumph or that treasure from what already is here and given to us. It's just how we consciously choose to move forward with it or not. Sharing these stories is one of the, the biggest reasons why you and I, Jenna, we show up here week after week is 
to continue these conversations, to continue. It's the reason why I often share from my own experience. It's in our stories. It's in our growth from our adversity, from our suffering, that we can create those ripples of change for the world around us. Looking forward to continuing this conversation then with you all on next episode.